A very good morning to you. And uh, today, welcome not only to church, but to a new uh, sermon series on 2 Corinthians. Um, I really hope that even if today is just an introduction, that the Lord's Holy Spirit will speak to hearts here. Because the message of 2 Corinthians is so important. Uh, more so now than perhaps at any time in the past. What I want to do in our introduction today is to just set the scene for the book and look at the first 22 verses. The beginnings and endings of Paul's letters always give us some useful insights into what the whole purpose is about in writing, and 2 Corinthians is no exception to that. These first uh, few verses introduce several themes that he's going to enlarge upon later in the letter as it progresses. But the whole letter, as I see it, is principally one about reconciliation. That is, Paul's own reconciliation with the Corinthians um, after some difficult and painful church discipline, the reconciliation of their thoughts and beliefs with correct doctrine, the reconciliation of all our hearts to God, And above all, the great reconciliation, which we spoke about back in January, by which I mean God's overarching plan to reconcile the entire world to himself and his choice of us as his ambassadors, his ministers of reconciliation in a fallen world. This letter covers a lot of different themes, and as we saw in January, it's quite difficult to pick out um, the one main thing that Paul says, in inverted commas, and certainly one main theme that, uh, that people tend to pick out is the relationship between suffering and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, something that surprised people then and still surprises people to today. But I think it's fair to say that the reason Paul says so much about the subject, and he does, is with a view to reconciliation. We, like the Corinthians, might struggle to reconcile in our own minds suffering and being in God's will. But until we do, we have a kind of wedge driven into our lives, driving us apart from God. So it's an appropriate thread to find woven in among all the other smaller reconciliations in this letter and big ones. Reconciliation of relationships, of vision, of hearts and minds to God, and later on we'll find of church to church. Wealthy church at Corinth, impoverished church at Jerusalem. But over and around and above and below and behind all these uh, micro-reconciliations stands the macro-reconciliation. God's great plan that we read about in chapter 519, to reconcile the world to himself. As we saw in Exodus, didn't we, right from the very beginning, God's purpose in calling a people to himself from among the surrounding nations was because all the earth was his. They weren't a chosen people because they were better than all the others. God set them apart to draw all the others to himself. And in the New Testament, that same mission is renewed, clarified, and intensified. Jesus calls calls us in Matthew 28 to make disciples of all nations. Who are to make disciples, who are to make disciples, who are to make disciples. And here we are today. Until, as Jesus puts it, the yeast works its way through the entire flour barrel. Our call, Matthew 5, is not to be the salt of the church, but the salt of the earth. Not to be the light only of the church, but the light of the entire world. 
It is this ministry of reconciliation, or as we put it in the Kingdom Vineyard, helping people make connections with God, which undergirds, runs through, and overarches the entire Bible. I suppose as we begin studying 2 Corinthians, the question automatically arises, what is the background? And in particular, for those of you who are familiar with 1 Corinthians, as most Christians are, what happened in between the two letters? And the answer would be quite a lot. We deduce some of this by what is said, in 2 Corinthians, and some by what is not said. Because where earlier instructions have been obeyed, Paul has no need to repeat them in the second letter. Where new issues are addressed, obviously new circumstances have arisen since the first letter. As one commentator puts it, 2 Corinthians is a response to a complicated history between Paul and the Corinthian church. And that, I think, is putting it pretty mildly. When people talk about having a complicated history, you kind of know what they're going to mean, especially in a family. Simply put, some of those complications include, A, Paul changing his mind about when he was going to visit, something they were all looking forward to. B, a visit by his sidekick, Timothy, at a very awkward time for the church. C, that very awkwardness itself, caused by rival teachers who wanted to make Corinth church more Jewish than it was. D, Paul's own corrective visit, which, as we know, was painful for all concerned. He says that later. E, a now lost, equally painful letter, a corrective letter, which he'd been forced to write even after his visit. And F, the known repentance of most of the church following that letter. So it's complicated indeed. With a history like this, it's not surprising that as he writes, Paul is subject to obvious mood swings and addresses a very wide variety of theological points. In our short study in January, we noticed that a vast array of quotable soundbites on different questions all come from this single letter. I don't want to steal the thunder of the following speakers as to what those topics are. But if we keep our eye on the reconciliation aspect as God's plan for the world, God's desire for us, our job in the world, we won't go far wrong in studying 2 Corinthians. And just before we do get going, I want to make one point about application. At the time of writing, there was a very definite us and you going on, which is not necessarily present in our own dynamic with God today. Paul doesn't know how his message is going to be received. So often, he speaks only for himself and his party. He can't quite tell whether the Corinthians will call themselves part of the us or will remain part of the you. And I'd hope that that most of us here, as we read this letter, are able to identify clearly with the writer and the us. But if we find that we exhibit the same faults as the Corinthian church did, then maybe we're safer regarding ourselves as part of the you. One thing that the us and you surely cannot be is Paul elevating himself to some sort of hyper-apostle rank so he can look down on the rest of us and talk down to us. Us other ranks. Because his goal is reconciliation. And as he famously said in the first letter, 1 Corinthians, that we're all equally valid and valuable parts of one body. There is no top-down in this, although there is a difference of roles. He has authority as an apostle, no doubt. But as he'll go on to say in verse 24, which we won't touch on today apart from this, he's not lording it over them in any way. So as we read, we shouldn't imagine any dual status, a talking down, either to the Corinthians or, for that matter, to us. 
Rather, where appropriate, we should include ourselves in the us whenever we can. Let's read together 2 Corinthians 1. We're going to read from verses 1 to 22. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and acknowledge. And I hope you will fully acknowledge, just as you did partially acknowledge us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us and we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way back to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Yes, 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 no. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In these uh, opening verses of a long and complex letter, I think Paul is doing several things. He is defending his own ministry against unwarranted but very real attacks. He is correcting false ideas about God and his servants. 
He is encouraging and comforting his readers. And above all, he is approaching them as a friend with a view to full reconciliation. And I think, note to self, he does all this without apologizing or playing low status because he didn't cause the rift in the first place. In this passage, I think we can identify five specific purposes of the author. Before we get into it, it's worth saying that St. Paul was much slandered and maligned and misunderstood in his own time, and he still is to this day. The chattering classes, you might have noticed, frequently portray Paul as sexist, narrow-minded, power-hungry, and an extremist, preaching a very different gospel from the one that Jesus himself preached. But then the chattering classes have always been rather more interested in the sound of their own voices than they have in the truth. As we read Paul's defences of his ministry in this letter, we should never make the mistake of thinking he's being defensive in the sense of being self-defensive. The extraordinary record of his sufferings and sacrifices for the gospel show quite clearly he cared not a jot for defending himself. He was always motivated by this ministry of reconciliation which had been given to him by God. When we hear those criticisms of the man who wrote such a huge chunk of the New Testament, it would be helpful to ask ourselves, who has most to gain by undercutting the authority of the word of God? I'm going to speak of Paul's five purposes in these verses. Quite briefly, you'll be glad to hear. But I hope you'll see that they're really God's purposes in addressing these words to a confused and bruised church at that time, and they're still his purposes as he speaks to us today. Purpose one is simply to bless them, verses one and two. This is a simple Pauline greeting. I notice that he writes as an apostle, which means literally one sent by Jesus. If you could just have those two verses up. Apostle means one who's been sent by Jesus. And just to make the point clear, he says this role is by the will of God. I, he didn't make this up. He didn't take it on himself. Later in the letter, he's going to talk about the many sufferings and persecutions that his apostleship has brought upon him. Being an apostle is not a sensible career choice. It's something you only do if God tells you to. And if he does, you better say yes. Right from the start, verse 2, this greeting shows that everything that follows will come in a spirit of blessing the readers. And that means us. And since Paul is writing as an apostle of Jesus by the will of God, we can take it that everything he says comes from Jesus and from God as well. Before we move on, let's just notice one thing. This letter begins, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. But it ends if you skip to the end, as you naughty people doubtless have, to read the last line. It ends, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Do you notice the addition? I don't think it's fanciful to suggest that this letter moves from a position where the fellowship of the Holy Spirit between the reader and the writer cannot be assumed to one where it is absolutely assured. It's a letter of reconciliation. Purpose two, to comfort them. First, purpose one was to bless them. Purpose two, to comfort them, verses three to seven. Painful truths have been aired in the recent past, but that is past. Now Paul introduces God as the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. 
So from the start, his intention is clear. But notice verse 4, that God doesn't save us from all affliction. He comforts us in all affliction. The Christian who knows no affliction has no comfort to offer to those who do. All he can do is say, as a mate of mine from down south says, when I say I'm not very well, he says, it's probably sin. <laughs> that's, his, that's his way of comforting me. And it makes me laugh if nothing else. But as Paul is going to suggest, far from being the mark of a true disciple, a trouble-free life is actually the opposite. If the devil doesn't bother to attack you, I suppose it might be because you're in such an impregnable position that he daren't, unlike ordinary mortals like St. Paul and me. But it could just be because Satan has you exactly where he wants you. And however comfortable life might be, that is not a comforting thought. In verse 5, sharing Christ's sufferings does not suggest that we are in any way part of Christ's unique sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world. The sufferings of Christ that we have to go through are merely those that go with the territory if, uh, Luke 9.23, we take up our cross daily and follow him. Yet these verses read as if it's more than that, as if there's actually a blessing in these sufferings. They speak of a supernatural comfort, which is so great, it's worth suffering to get it. A kind of vast lake of supernatural uh, comforting from God himself, which I could be tapping into, instead of scraping up an old can of rusty, dusty water from the bottom of a cracked cistern of my own resources. I'm not very good at it, being comforted by God. But I'm convinced from these verses that it's there for the taking. Perhaps you can pray for me later to find God's comfort. Paul certainly wants the Corinthians to experience it. And verse 7, he is confident that they will. We all need to learn to seek comfort from God. But I think we can also take a degree of immediate comfort just from the simple fact that even these first Christians, living so soon after the time of Christ, you know, under the influence of St. Paul himself, personally, had their fallings out and managed to patch them up. And if they can do it, perhaps we can too. Purpose three is to challenge their thinking, verses 8 to 10. It was a common assumption in the ancient world that if things were going well, uh, the gods were smiling on you, and vice versa. And we see a similar superstition abroad in the church today, which is sometimes called the prosperity gospel. The context seems to indicate that Paul's adversaries had suggested that their own relatively trouble-free lives were proof that God was blessing them and protecting them whereas Paul's frequent difficulties and persecutions were a sure sign that God was against him. But Paul confronts that nonsense head-on. He doesn't want there to be any doubt about his party's recent afflictions. In fact, he says things were so bad, verses 8 and 9, that they actually gave up all hope of surviving it. Now, this is probably precise, precisely the opposite of the ways those adversaries would speak. Prosperity gospelers are always full of positive testimonies, health, wealth, and happiness, and hallelujah, brother, everything's for the best in the best of all possible worlds, as long as you love God. But Paul's grim honesty hits this false fire like a bucket of cold water. We thought we were going to die, but that forced us only to rely on God instead of on ourselves. 
I don't think many of us have experienced that kind of complete exhaustion of our own resources. But if we ever do, may we find the grace that Paul did to turn to God who alone can comfort and help us. The God who raises the dead. Paul wouldn't have had any truck with the prosperity gospel. In his view, far from health, wealth and happiness, we are to expect the sufferings of Christ. Our lives don't have to be all about glittering prizes. Though many of you will win many, I've no doubt. Because in our lives, our own lives are in a way not the point. The point is more the life of Christ in us, the hope of glory. The treasure in earthen vessels that we'll come to later in the letter. Just a little hook for you. Paul's attitude in these verses probably came as a bit of a slap in the face to some of the Corinthians. But on reflection, they would have realized that it was just a welcome wake-up call. Hang on a second. Paul's not even trying to hide the fact that he's suffering. He actually seems to draw strength and affirmation from it. So perhaps I don't have to pretend everything's hunky-dory either. Our life stories shouldn't become a misery memoir, nor every meeting a pity party. Paul was remarkably free of self-pity, considering all the suffering that he went through. But there's a huge difference between putting a brave face on things, which if you're British, is not only culturally appropriate, but thoroughly commendable, (laughs) and putting on a leering mask of insincere good cheer to cover our true feelings. The danger of the latter is that if we wear that mask long enough, we'll begin to believe it ourselves and we'll become completely detached from reality. Many a Christian does, let me say. Purpose four, to encourage them, verses 11 to 14. Verse 11 places the Corinthians right back on Paul's team again, as those who, through prayer, will participate in every success that he has. Now, they might well have thought that he was going to be sniffy with them after everything that had happened. Maybe you or I might have been. But not a bit of it. He's not pretending that there never was a problem, but he is indicating that as far as he's concerned, it's over. They're back on his prayer team, verse 11. Paul and co. have always been straight with them, verse 12, and they're being straight now, verse 13. The Corinthians nearly grasped the truth before, verses 13 into 14, but he's confident they're really going to get it now. And verse 14, on judgment day, he's looking forward to the time when both they and Paul will happily brag about each other to the Lord Jesus himself. I think Paul's wise to begin by encouraging them to pray for him. And if we're wise, we'll always make a point of praying for people who hurt us. I've noticed down the years that it's very difficult to feel out of sorts with someone if I'm actually praying for them. Different matter if I'm merely thinking about them. Hmm. Then he encourages them, verse 12, to believe that he's always been very open with them. He boasts openly about his frankness with them, as if it's a matter of record. And now they come to think of it, of course it is a matter of record. They might remember 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, where he addressed their high intellectual pretensions. And he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's simple, straight talk, if you like. These guys prided themselves on being clever clogs philosophers. It made no sense to suggest that straight-talking old Paul should have taken them in with some skullduggery. 
Then verse 13, he encourages them directly to think it through properly. He says, put me to the test. Read between the lines of this letter if you can. There's nothing there that's not there on the face of the text. And lastly, verse 14, he encourages them to look forward to the day of the Lord, i.e. judgment day, and imagine Paul boasting of them and vice versa. Now, I know boasting is culturally difficult for us in the UK. Other nations find it a bit easier. I've noticed that um, in, in, the last, in the last decade or so, when you see a British sportsman who's, who's done something good, he always talks about how humble he is when he means the opposite. He means he's proud, but he, said, he can't say that. So he's, he's bragging about what he's doing. He said, oh, you're so humbled. Oh, feel humbled. You spotted that? It's ludicrous, isn't it? <laughs> Boasting is a subject we're going to come back to later on. I think Jesse's got that one. So no plot spoilers. You have to wait until we get there. Uh, purpose five, last one, to embrace them again, to embrace the Corinthians again into full fellowship and relationship. Verses 15 to 21. The imagined judgment day scenario of verse 14 indicates a complete and eternal reconciliation. So perfect that it's safe to play it out before God, even with boasting. In verse 15, he says he's sure this is going to happen. And at this point, he seems almost overcome with love for them. And he longs to explain an issue that he knows has hurt them. He had said he would come and visit. But in the end, he didn't turn up. And this seems to have been seized upon by his opponents as evidence that he was unreliable and therefore ungodly. But in fact, as we shall see next week, he only stayed away with them, only stayed away from them to prevent them having pain. I assume he means the, the pain of a destructive public confrontation with those who'd been taken in by false teachers. It could have been very damaging to the church. As throughout this letter, he needs to reassure his readers that he's not what people say he is. But that's for their sake, not for his. Because if he allowed the various slanders to go unchallenged, he'd lose influence with a church he loves, which would hurt him. But that's not the point. The real issue is their own safety. Unhelpful influences have already knocked them off course. And he wrote to correct them. Now he needs to restore full relationships so that it won't happen again. So he has to deal with perceived outstanding grievances like this one, unreliability. In fact, he's not at all unreliable. And he's confident they'll realize this if they think for a moment about, about the Paul they know. So he boldly asks the twin rhetorical questions of verse 17. Not necessarily what you or I would do in his position, actually. It's pretty brave. Was I vacillating? Do I make plans according to the flesh? Well, of course not. There's a, a favourite um, video of my children from the uh, from the oeuvre of um, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? From the oeuvre of Sesame Street, Captain Vegetable. Is anyone familiar with Captain Vegetable? You know this song. Oh, I says I, Captain Vegetable, with my carrot and my celery. They are crunchy and very good for you, etc., etc. But he, <clears throat> at one point in it, at one point in it. And he looks really weird and unhealthy. And at one point he says, do I look like a weirdo? And the kids will go, yes! <laughs> yeah, the rhetorical question can backfire. Uh, do I look like a weirdo? Yes. But... 
Paul is brave enough to ask this twist. Was I vacillating? They could have said, yes. Do I make plans according to the flesh? Yes. No, no. He was confident that they would not. From time to time, we do hear unpleasant things about people we know. And if we are wise, we will do exactly what Paul encourages the Corinthians to do. To remember what we know of the person and ask ourselves if it's really likely. If it's out of character, it's probably not true and best ignored. In verses 18 and 19, I think Paul is making a bold, almost outrageous appeal to his role as God's messenger. God is faithful. And those who truly know and serve him are faithful too. If the Corinthians think about it, they'll know this is true of him. So he just comes straight out with it. He's got no hidden agenda in his dealings with them. He's never made any rash or flattering promises. Jesus himself, whom Paul and co. first preached at Corinth, wasn't a yes or no kind of guy. He was a resounding yes. How successful, he says, would their preaching have been if they themselves had displayed themselves to be dithering, swithering, duplicitous and indecisive. The very existence of the church at Corinth is proof that they were no such thing, that the goods were available as advertised. And as to this puzzling little idea of Jesus always being yes, I think it's really careful, uh, we have to be careful to, to lock that phrase down into its context. Because Jesus certainly won't say yes to every question and request. So it can't mean that. May I please have a British Racing Green Belkley Malsan Turbo with a drop head in white leather? No. But if anyone is really rich and you, you now know what I want. Right? <clears throat> he won't say yes to everything that we ask him. It can't mean that. But as verse 20 explains... He is the definitive yes to any questions we might have about whether or not God is going to keep his promises. Because he himself is the fulfillment of all those promises. This, Paul says, is why Christians often end a prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Because it is through Jesus that we will receive our answers. And as we draw this study to a close, just notice the present and past tenses in verses 21 and 22. God establishes, i.e. God is establishing us with you. It's an ongoing process of reconciliation. But he has already anointed us, put his seal upon us, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That is a done deal. At the time of writing, this particular us definitely referred to Paul and his friends, but not necessarily to his readers. But as many of them were, Many of us in this room are also anointed and sealed and filled with the Spirit. And it would be very helpful if we were a little more confident of the fact that it's a done deal. We already stand united by these things. But it's also encouraging to know that there's an ongoing process whereby God continues to establish and build us together. This last section, like the rest of the introduction, is all about reconciliation. And here, too, we should remember that Paul's purposes are completely in line with God's purposes. His longing to be with them, his appeal to what they know of him, 
the reminder of those happy, heady days when they first came to faith through him, the reference to God keeping his promises in Jesus. It all says we are on the same team. We are family. We have history and faith in common. Might be a complicated history, but we're through that. There's nothing wrong between us. Let's get back to where we were. Rebelling against God's messenger was indeed a serious matter, but that's all over, and he now wants to embrace them again into fully restored relationship. Like Paul with the Corinthians, and like all true friends, God himself wants to bless, comfort, challenge, and encourage us. His heart is set on reconciliation, and he longs to embrace each one of us and the whole world in fully restored relationship. That means me. That means you. That means the world out there. Why don't you stand and I'll ask the Holy Spirit to come.